Hey everybody, this is Nick Fletcher, and this is the June 2023 version of Interview with the PD Pod. I was extremely excited to talk today to my guest, John Davids, from Shriners in Northern California. John is a bit of a renaissance man, having grown up in Miami before being classically trained at a bunch of Ivy League institutions like Brown and Harvard. He subsequently drifted west, initially to Colorado for his residency before finally setting in San Diego, and then came back closer to the East Coast for family reasons to South Carolina before crossing the country again to the uh, Northern California Shriners. John is a remarkable educator and I think an incredibly wise man. Uh, He's somebody who I remember distinctly listening to at my first IPOS in 2007. And I remember being incredibly taken aback. At the time, I was a PGY3, and I had a attending who was a trauma attending and did a lot of pelvic and acetabular work named Phil Krieger. And Phil, tabular reconstructive surgeon and pelvic surgeon. And I feel like that is similar to my perception of John as it pertains to gait. Um, I think that John presents gait and understanding the ambulatory component of cerebral palsy in particular in a pragmatic but very understandable fashion. I've really been impressed because I've seen him speak so many times at how well I perceive Gate, or at least I, I think I perceive Gate after listening to a John David's talk. Mm-hmm. I'm also really impressed with his ability to innovate, which he continues to present on at meetings like IPOS and POSNA, especially at this point in his career. Things like proximal femoral medial hemiopithesis and using apps on a phone for understanding gait and doing uh, gait analysis, I think are, are really revolutionary and something that he is incredibly passionate about. So he's a wonderful person to talk to. I learned a lot during this episode, and I was really excited to have the opportunity to ask him a number of questions about how he manages d- different aspects of neuromuscular hips and lower extremities, uh, amongst other things. And I hope you will as well. Uh, he's certainly a wealth of knowledge. So please enjoy this interview with John Davids from the Shriners Hospital in Northern California. Thank you again, as always, to Carter Clement. I can't thank him enough. It's amazing how much work he does doing post-production of these podcasts, as well as others amongst a very busy uh, practice that uh, continues to grow as he gets further away from his training. So thank you to Carter and thank you to all of you for your kind wishes at POSNO about the content of this podcast. I really enjoy it and uh, and I'm blessed to have the opportunity to speak to so many incredible members of our society. Enjoy. Um, well, I will formally invite you or I welcome you, I should say, into the podcast today. And, and like you said, we've been trying at this for a little bit of time, but pause has sort of got in the way uh, and then other stuff. So I've, I've really been looking forward to getting the opportunity to sit down and talk to you. I actually remember you speaking at the first IPOS I went to back when I was a resident. And I think that we're going to talk a little bit about uh, neuromuscular conditions, but I think for for somebody who was starting out and knew that I wanted to do pediatric orthopedics, it, it was really sort of eye-opening. I, I'd never seen a such a confusing topic laid out as well as you had set up the entire that entire section. I mean, your lecture in particular stood out to me, but I just remember, you know, that that being like one of those aha moments where I, I really 
thought, okay, I get this. I can, I'm starting to get a little bit more. So uh, that, that was my first memory use. So I thank you for that. Oh, yeah, that's uh, very kind. What year, what, what year was that, Nick? That would have been 2007. So okay. uh, you know, yeah. a while back, 16 years ago, it's been, been a while. So, so I, I always like to start with a little bit of an origin story. I, I, I like hearing about where people came from. I looked through your bio and I, I said it's sort of hard to pick up too much on people online. But you uh, either start, lived in the Northeast, went to school in the Northeast, and then moved out West, or le- uh, lived in the West, went East, and then came back. So what, what, what was your childhood like? I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And when I was one year old, my family moved to Miami, Florida. And that's okay. where I grew up. My father was a passionate fisherman and scuba diver. And he grew up in New York, but he had visited Miami because he had a sister with rheumatic heart disease who was sent there to convalesce for several years. And he and his mother would take the train to visit her every six months for the years she was there. And that was his first exposure to Miami. Wow. So anyway, that's, I, I grew up there and it was a really interesting time to grow up there in the 60s. Um, there was an influx of Cubans fleeing Castro. In the 70s, there was an influx of Haitians fleeing primarily for economic reasons. And then by the 80s, um, it was uh, Nicaraguans, Colombians fleeing narco-terrorism. So uh, the city uh, went through a lot of changes while I was was living there. And the, the city today is much, much bigger and more complex than it was when I was there. Yeah, that's Early. fascinating. That was not where I was expecting uh, the origin story to be. So, so you grew up and you said, so your dad was, was into fishing. Are, are you a real outdoorsy guy? Is that sort of where some of that came from? <laughs> uh, some of that, you know, I was kind of terrified of uh, fishing. <laughs> we would go out into the Gulf Stream so you couldn't see the land anymore. And I kind of always was wondering if I would be able to swim back to shore if something happened. And then uh, I remember one time my, my dad caught a shark. And he, and he got the shark into the boat. And I'd never seen this, but he had this small baseball bat. And he pummeled the shark uh, to death. And I was appalled. I was just so scared of the whole thing. So I don't do much uh, fishing. But um, on a positive side, he taught us, my brother and I had a water ski when we were six years old. And then he got us uh, certified uh, in scuba diving when we were 13, which is way too young, I think, to be doing such a complex um, sport. But we had some really nice adventures uh, together with him, you know, water skiing, diving, and to a lesser extent, fishing. That's great. What, what were you like as a kid? I was um, a fairly intense student. I played a variety of sports. Wasn't necessarily very good at the sports, but, you know, could be on the team and kind of carry my, my part of it. I had from probably early teens on uh, a great desire to travel and to do service. And when I was 15, I joined this group called Amigos de las Americas that sent high school kids to Central and South America to work on vaccination campaigns. And um, in retrospect, I would say that was a huge mistake for a number of reasons. Not personally, it was a great experience, but we were not really that sophisticated enough to really understand the public health elements of vaccination and cold state, cold chain storage. And we might show up somewhere, give one or two doses, and then we would leave. We'd leave dosages with the host country, but they frequently didn't have the people to get out into the countryside to do the vaccinations. So that organization still exists, but they've pivoted all these years later and focus more on cultural exchange and community development 
with the young people who, who go to these, you know, host communities in resource poor settings. Wow. Okay. And uh, I, I should probably know this, but has that continued in your career, your sort of interest in working overseas and, and abroad? Um, absolutely. I uh, was a Latin American studies major as an undergraduate focusing on language and um, anthropology. And I was a, I guess I would say an in-the-closet pre-med. I took the bare minimum uh, courses uh, to satisfy the uh, entrance requirements to medical school. And um, yeah, for the past 15 years, I've been working with World Pediatric Project, um, taking, uh, doing trips to Belize for uh, service trips. That's really neat. My my son is actually going to Belize this summer to scuba dive. Well, partly to scuba dive, so, and he's 14, so he's just above the threshold. Yeah. Um, so that's yes. great. We're looking forward to that. And you went to Brown. Uh, I grew up in Rhode Island, so it's a mm. institution both my parents were went there near and dear to me. But that's uh, that's obviously a little bit different than Miami. So, like I said, both my parents went there, and the educational structure is uh, is different than at least than a lot of the other sort of institutions and schools um, that I grew up with. How was your experience at Brown? Well, it was the first time I'd seen snow, uh, so that yep. was sort of shocking. And uh, my uh, idea of dealing with that was to get a fluffy down coat and put it on top of what I had been wearing in Miami. So uh, it took a few years to figure out that, you know, it's better to layer. Uh, when I was at Brown, they had what was called the new curriculum, which was a no distribution requirements, no grades. Um, and that was all, you know, fun. But um, if you had aspirations for graduate school, uh, you couldn't really play the game that way. And um, there were a number of uh, people who were not mature enough to really figure out the new curriculum. And uh, I think they wasted some of their time, unfortunately, and their parents' money. But my time there was good. The Latin American Studies Department was pretty small at the time. So in my senior year, I was a visiting student at the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Florida in Gainesville, which was wonderful and shocking uh, kind of all at the same time. The um, Latin American Studies stuff was fantastic. The little bit of pre-med that I had to take was very, very different than pre-med at Brown. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you, at what point did the decision to sort of go pre-med and, and that that might be a future for you come come about? Because that's not the typical, I assume, the typical course for most Latin American studies majors. <laughs> You're probably right. I um, had had the Amigos experience growing up. I went to college in my first year to focus on economics and philosophy. I enjoyed that. But at the time in economics, there was a big debate going on on capitalism versus communism. And I was disillusioned by the fact that we couldn't really even get past that and sort out that particular basic problem. So as I look back on my young life, I realized that the Amigos experience was the thing that meant the most to me. So hence the pivot to that. My intent, though, was to go to medical school, uh, get an MPH and do uh, global health uh, wow. focused on pediatrics. So I didn't get the sense from sort of your upbringing that you were a super handy guy. So where, how did orthopedics come about in all this? <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. I, I, that wasn't part of my uh, background at all. My first exposure to surgery was um, kind of eye-opening uh, for me. I really liked that. Then in uh, physics, um, I really appreciated what could be called biomechanics. Orthopedics first exposure came at a time when um, my mother had a terminal illness and she eventually passed away. 
And the attraction of doing something that you would actually fix um, was what brought me to orthopedics versus compassionate care for somebody who had a problem that in the end they were going to succumb to. Yeah. And it wasn't until residency. Well, I'll I'll back up a little bit. There was a uh, very early gate lab at Boston Children's Hospital. And that was my first exposure as a medical student to that. And I was intellectually intrigued, but I didn't have any kind of background really engineering wise to, uh, to do that. But then in residency, um, early on, PEDS and PEDS trauma introduced me to the concept of the beauty of orthopedic tissues and conceptually the concept of the fourth dimension time and controlling or manipulating that. Uh, those were intriguing. In my residency, which was in Denver at the University of Colorado, half of us did a rotation at Rancho Los Amigos Medical Center, which was the L.A. County chronic care facility. And I was fortunate enough to get to go there where I met two incredible mentors, Jacqueline Perry and uh, Mark Hoffer. And they were using early gait analysis in their clinical decision making for treatment of kids with CP. And that was my first exposure to um, this just not being theoretical, but actually practical. Wow. Around what time did sort of true gate analysis come about? Was that sort of at the, at, in its nascency? Was that, was it relatively mature at that time? Yeah. So if by true gate analysis, we mean systems that you could buy and set up and be ready to yeah. go, that didn't happen until the last half of the 90s. Okay. So uh, all of the gate labs before that were custom built, requiring some kind of a partnership with, in some cases, uh, aircraft industry. The first modern gate lab uh, was built at Berkeley under a guy named Vern Inman, and he came at this uh, after World War II. He had a profound understanding of gate, and he partnered with engineers from Lockheed who were kind of you know, winding down from the war effort and were looking for, you know, new kind of work and built the first gate lab. By the 90s, companies that built computers were the people who one would partner with. And you needed a team of a local engineer, physician who sort of understood how you might use this, and then the computer company to create the hardware and the software for you. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and were those predominantly used at the time for uh, children or, or was it more adult problems? Just I, again, I'm finding funding for, you know, pediatric illnesses, especially I think in neuromuscular disorders is, is hard now, but I can only imagine when nobody really understood the impact of it. Yeah. Initially it was applied to soldiers coming back from the war as amputees. And the idea was to understand normal gait and then figure out from that how to design and build prostheses and then assess how well the person uh, walked with that. The earliest gate labs were primarily for children, and they were um, in centers that were subsidized. So Shriners would be a great example of a subsidized center that they were able to kind of put that in. In the earliest days, though, there was great interest in arthroplasty, and the development of the PCL sparing knee, for instance, came out of studies from a gate analysis. There were some early applications in sports as well, for example, the study of gait patterns in individuals who had an ACL injury, they were able to discern who had instability when they were walking and who didn't, and then try to figure out, well, you know, who should 
have an ACL reconstruction in the uh, early pre-arthroscopic days of, um, of doing that. But this was before true 3D gate analysis, before, wow, that's incredible to be able to, you know, for people to pick up subtle things like that just on, I assume, relatively rudimentary systems. Yeah, the there were uh, 3D gate analysis at the time, but again, it was custom built, and so you, you couldn't get access to it pretty easily. And there was a EMG. So, for instance, in the ACL group, it was possible to look at well in the ones who were stable. How are they achieving that stability? Which yeah. muscles were active? Yeah, yeah. The technology took off in the in the 90s with the availability and cheap cost of computers. So uh, I, I, lo- I love this line of discussion. I do want to go back to sort of your path, though, through this. So Jacqueline Perry, so you got to see this really, I assume it was relatively eye-opening because, uh, because that was, it, was, it was so new and, and unique. Did you, was that sort of an instant light switch where you thought that this aspect of orthopedics was really ne- unique and that you fell in love with gait? Or was it the underlying pathologic conditions, cerebral palsy, other neuromuscular conditions that sort of drew you into PEDS? Uh, it was gate first, Nick, interestingly, and then um, it was very clear from my time at Rancho that the, the group where you could apply this the most directly at that time was going to be kids with CP, kids with spina bifida, kids with things like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, hereditary sensory motor neuropathies, everything that today we call neuroorthopedics. Yes. So, yeah, that was, that was the party line at Rancho, and they were way ahead of their time uh, with that. And uh, the, the community kind of looked at what they were doing at Rancho as sort of, you know, these are sort of West Coast uh, nuts who, um, you know, they're playing around with these computers that's never, ever going to be fully baked and be able to be utilized. So that, for me, probably came first. And then the first half of residency, just dealing with children and pediatric orthopedics, it kind of came together. I sort of think of life as a sort of circle sailing Maybe it's a spiral instead of a circle, but (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of ended up back in peds, though, in a way that I had never thought I would be, which is as an orthopedic surgeon and utilizing gait analysis. Yeah, that is fascinating. So, uh, you know, you you mentioned that you'd listened to the podcast with Bob a a couple of months ago, um, and he obviously has a big interest in neuromuscular conditions and training uh, at Gillette. And your fellowship was in San Diego. And and obviously, uh, we know a lot about San Diego and got such a storied history and neuromuscular conditions now. Was that the same when you were going through? Was there something that drew you to that fellowship? Yeah, the person who drew me there was David Sutherland, who is really remembered as the father of gait analysis for children with CP. And in another sort of example of uh, circle sailing, David made the first gait lab in the U.S. for children at Shriners Hospital in San Francisco. In the uh, late 90s, that hospital moved to Sacramento, and I got there in the 2011, and the gate lab that is mine was initially his. So his, his picture is on the wall uh, in the lab and at my desk to uh, kind of keep an eye on me because um, he was an incredible, incredible mentor. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of that experience with him? And uh, I mean, I just... You know, I spent time with Lori uh, as a TSRH fellow, and that was amazing. And um, we had, you know, Kelly Jeans and, and others sort of helping us in, in the Gate Lab. And I remember those times so fondly. Uh, again, it's an area which I, I trained at Vanderbilt for residency. We didn't have a Gate Lab, and so this was totally new to me. And I loved how Lori broke it down. I loved how we had these team discussions. 
what was it like sort of going through? What, what were some of the, the high points of training with, uh, with somebody as uh, well known and established as him? You know, before that, it was Jacqueline Perry and Mark Hoffer. And Perry was just amazing. I mean, she was a uh, physical therapist in World War II. She was stationed in Hong Kong. She saw a lot of people with polio. So she developed a huge interest in that. After the war, she went to medical school on the GI Bill, which was like, wow, woman. And then she went into orthopedics, which was like, wow, a woman. And she and David Sutherland were fellow residents at UCSF, where they were exposed to Dr. Inman and the first modern gate lab in the U.S. And so of the many people he trained, these two really went on to take gate analysis to the um, next level. Anyhow, working with Sutherland, uh, he was the uh, child of missionaries. He was born in China and was sent back to the U.S. to get his education. And he was such a calm, steady, gentle man. He seemed to have infinite patience. He was not afraid of anything. And he was a remarkable role model for me. I got to San Diego uh, right when he retired from his clinical practice. And so Uh, My fellowship was actually cut short after nine months to become an attending to pick up his practice, which was a business decision by the group. And it worked out fine for me because he was still there and able to mentor me. And although I went to San Diego for Sutherland, oh my God, what a rich place it was. You know, Wenger, Mubarak, you know, each of those guys could fill a year and it would be drinking from a fire hose. And there were uh, three of them there. So that was very special. I joined the practice after fellowship and was there for a few years. And then for family reasons, moved to the Southeast and then jumped in with Shriners. Anyway, yeah, you Dr. Were Duke, Sutherland, right? I was at Shriners in Greenville, South Carolina, and okay. we trained residents from Duke and maybe three to four other programs over my time there. So I had a faculty appointment at Duke and I, you know, went up to make lectures, but, um, it was really through the Shrine Connection that I was connected with with, uh, with Duke. Well, and, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. You are about to say something about Sutherland. Yeah, so it was a joy to sit by his side, sit at his knee and kind of see how he walked through the gate analysis interpretations. But really, it was a physical therapist there who worked with him through his whole time in San Diego and was part of some of his seminal work on maturation of normal gait Her name was Marilyn uh, Wyatt, and it was really Marilyn who was willing to give me the time and attention to figure out how to do the, how to understand the data and, you know, when to realize because of modeling assumptions or or other technical deficiencies that um, when there was, when there was a conflict with a clinical impression, sometimes the data is better than the clinical impression. Sometimes the clinical impression is better than the data. And that has changed over the course of my career as the data has gotten better and better. But in the, in the early days, um, one had to kind of figure out how to, how to handle that because there were lots of apparent inconsistencies between what you thought you saw clinically and what the data was showing you. Interesting. Uh, so this is a little bit of a theoretical question. So assuming that back sort of when you were starting out, that 
modern gate analysis was on the 25 yard line, use a football analogy. Where do you think we are today? Because I'm curious hearing that progression. And then uh, again, I've seen a number of your lectures and now we're, we're doing a lot of it on phones and, and whatnot. How do you, our just general understanding of it, how do you think we've got, how far do you think we've gotten? Well, we'll never get to 100% because yeah. new technologies come along and create new opportunities, but we're probably between 85 and 90% if we stick with that analogy in terms of data, accuracy, all of that. Clinically, in terms of actually embracing these data and using them in a committed way for clinical decision-making and being committed to using them for outcome assessment, it's different around the world. Um, in our country, we're maybe not even on the 50-yard line yeah. uh, that way. I've been really fortunate to travel a lot related to my career and meet people who share this passion around the world. And in countries with centralized healthcare, where they take all the complicated problems and put them in one place and where they allocate resources based on objective quantitative data, they've embraced gate analysis to a degree uh, way beyond what we have. So we were the leaders in the 90s and early 2000s. And Dr. Sutherland uh, took me on my first European trip as his Padwan, if you will. <laughs> And uh, that led to a, a decade of opportunities to teach in Europe and Pacific Rim. But after about a decade, uh, they understood things as well as we did, and they no longer needed to have us come over to teach. And because their systems embraced the gate analysis tool more quickly and comprehensively than us, they now sadly have outstripped us because they have registries and very consistent assessments and interventions and outcomes. I happen to have uh, Kerr Graham as my uh, as our sort of end of year get, uh, visiting professor as a fellow, and and spent mm. a bunch of time with him and loved him, and really to this day still hold a lot of the things that he educated us on as uh, as near gospel. Who else really does it well that you visited overseas? Well, I was thinking, Nick, that as I was mentioning the people who I directly trained under, that it would be wrong not to mention a few other people oh, yeah. uh, as well. And in our country, um, Jim Gage at uh, Gillette and before that, Newington Children's was a huge, huge influence on the field and ultimately on uh, me as well as I uh, got to know him as a colleague. But around the world, well, Kerr and Melbourne Royal Children's Hospital have been the epicenter for the majority of my time. I've um, been there to uh, join them as faculty in a gate course four times. And I'm actually heading there in August for the fifth time. Oh, wow. And uh, I'm pretty sure that'll be the last invite uh, for me. Uh, the, the staff there have all changed. It's a whole new uh, generation of people, as it should be. Uh, but I'm very much looking forward to going there. I learned so much uh, from them when, when I visit them. There um, is a guy in Korea who isn't very well known, but has also embraced all of this. Uh, Hunwoo Kim, I was very impressed with over the years. And then in, um, in Europe, uh, Tim Theologis at Oxford is, um, is a leader. The uh, Gate Lab that was initially in uh, Heidelberg under Leo Doderlein sort of split into two and just over time. And uh, the person who inherited that lab from Leo, a student of his, uh, moved on to Zurich, Thomas Dreher, who you may or may not know. Anyway, those, those are the people who I've had the most interactions with. Uh, there's a group in Leuven, Belgium, also, who have been very instrumental in advancing uh, the game. So um, because it's a small corner of the pediatric orthopedic universe, 
we do get to know each other. And over the years, primarily through teaching gate courses, the three most popular gate courses are offered at Gillette, at um, the University of Connecticut, and then in Leuven. And so all of us together rotate through those places pre-COVID at least every, every three years. I mean, that is just so cool. What, what a great history. So going back to sort of your story along this path. So when you left uh, fellowship, well, when you left San Diego, because you had said you were there for a couple of years afterwards and, and moved back east, what was it like at the shrine? Did the shrine, was, did they have an established gate lab? Did, did you really start anew and, and build everything up? Can you talk about that a little bit, especially integrating into a, into a Shriners culture, which is a little bit different than uh, Rady, from my yeah. understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the shrine was very much like Rancho. So um, once I got there, I'd never been in a shrine before. I, I, I recognized what it was, and I was, I, was, I was fine with that. Comfortable, very comfortable with it. I wanted to be in the southeast for my wife's family, who were from Atlanta. So I looked uh, very hard at Scottish Rite. They said, well, yeah, we like what you, what you bring. Um, after you get here, we'll raise the money and start a gate lab. And Dr. Sutherland told me that that probably wasn't the best way to do it. When I went to the Shriners, they said, yeah, we like what you've got. Um, we've got the money for a gate lab, and we're waiting to get somebody here who knows how to do it, which was a stretch, but that's what they thought. And then once you're here, I can tell you, yeah, we'll build a gate lab. And so that's, that's what happened. And um, I was really not well enough trained, experienced enough. I wasn't an engineer to really know about it. Uh, but first step was to hire an engineer who had trained at the University of Utah, and she understood gate analysis from a, um, you know, more of a research a- approach. And so together, we uh, fumble-bummed our way along and, um, you know, built this gate lab. And um, I learned so much from her and then the subsequent engineer who we hired after she left. So we were starting to ground zero. And, you know, when you bring something new to a place, or let's maybe I'll say it a different way. If you change places. So wherever you trained, you don't stay there, you go somewhere else. Things that you never would have questioned if you had stayed where you trained, get questioned. And some of what I brought to Shriners in Greenville um, didn't stand the scrutiny of my colleagues. And that was eye-opening. But the Gate Lab, I knew my boss, who was Ben Allen, who is another amazing man, big giant um, in my trajectory here, huge um, mentor. I knew he wanted me to succeed. And so the pushback I got from the others on gate analysis really didn't bother me because I knew he was behind me. And Nick, if you have the technology and you use it and you end up with this you know, library of videos of before and after, you are so far ahead of anybody else doing it any other way that they really can't keep up with you. And to their credit, they recognize, okay, this is better. And ultimately, we're supportive. That happened when I moved to the Shriners in Northern California, where there was a lab, but it was more of a toy. It wasn't like fully integrated into clinical decision making. Well, that's where Lori had her first job and got exposed to gate analysis. A brilliant guy, George Rabb, you know, he understood it. He was an engineer, but he, it was more of an intellectual pursuit than a clinical tool for him. Yeah. So let me pose you a question. It's funny you mentioned Scottish Rite and that they were, they would raise the money because I, I don't I don't know exactly how many years ago that was, but knowing that you and Bob are in the same vintage, it still hasn't uh, arrived. So I'm waiting. I'm sure the Gate Labs in the mail. But I guess the question that I, that I <laughs> wanted to ask you is, 
I, I'm sure you've been asked this before. You've thought about it before. For those who are not in the Shriner system, for those who don't have access uh, or have a have a hospital that sees the value in it, what's the value pitch? How would you counsel people who are looking to to build that? Because we have Bob has tried for a while to get this off the ground. Yeah, the um, the pitch has a couple different facets. The first is, you know, if you if you want to say that you're a leader in this. You can't be a leader amongst our peers if you don't have the gate analysis. That doesn't do much for the administrators and the the bean counters. But the deal is to recognize that the gate lab is not a standalone in terms of the income it generates. If you have a gate lab and there are no other gate labs that you're competing with in the region, you've got something that will bring you patients. And those patients will have surgery. And that puts heads in beds. It gives your therapist, it gives orthotics, you know, there's the part of the hospital really where CP patients don't touch, uh, you know, the medical comorbidities, all of that uh, kind of gets involved as you're, I'm sure, very familiar with in your practice. So I think that they need to uh, recognize that. Or, or in the first third of my career, I got really heavily into establishing CPT codes for gate analysis. And it's an arduous process to get a code and um, we followed the, uh, you know, the guidelines, came up with the justification, and that information then all got sent to Washington. And I, and I remember one day I, I testified in front of the CPT code committee in D.C. Uh, remotely. You know, I was, <laughs> was kind of proud of myself. My kids were toddlers or a little bit beyond that, and I was, it was on the weekend, and my wife was a pediatrician on call, and I was taking care of the kids, testifying in Washington all at the same time, you know, a fabulous uh, multitask. But what I realized was the pie is generally fixed. And anytime something new comes in, something else has to suffer. And although we were really well-intentioned with these codes, Nick, once they were approved, the reimbursement rates established to them were less than the way we had been billing sort of ad hoc working around with existing codes in other specialties like physician um, evaluations or PT evaluations. So uh, in the end, we gained the credibility of having a CPT, CPT code, but we didn't help the effort of getting reimbursed. So wow. that was a little uh, disillusioning, that, yeah. that experience. What an interesting story. I love sort of walking through all of this. Um, one of the things that I, I know probably you also came or came along as you were either early in your practice or maybe uh, a little bit before that was the concept of a SEML, which was something that was sort of it, it really didn't happen a lot, even in Dallas when I was a fellow. Obviously, it's a lot more common now. But can can you sort of talk to people? Because, uh, again, I think that there are a lot of people out there who just assume that the, that a single event, multi-level uh, procedure for neuromuscular conditions has been around forever. But at least, you know, my training and my education with Neil Green at Vanderbilt was that, you know, the concept of birthday surgery. And then we were starting to move past that. But can you talk a little bit about sort of coming that coming along during your practice? Yeah, as an aside, TSRH was very slow to embrace all of this and were very cynical about CP. And Lori um, had, a, had a really tough job in promoting that. And it seemed that she was looking, would always be looking for other gate lab applications that would be embraced by her colleagues, like the clubfoot studies that she did, for instance, which had some technical problems, but you know, perhaps bought a, got a little buy-in from them for using the technology. So, um, yes, uh, in my training, um, SEMLs didn't exist. And 
The idea was that it was too complicated, that you couldn't really figure out before the first surgery what the impact of that would be on the other joints, and therefore it was a mistake to do multi-level surgery. And it's important to recognize that thinking at that time for CP was pretty much all borrowed from polio. And it's easy to understand why the clinicians did that. You know, a, a kid with polio might walk in a toe gate. A kid with CP might walk in a toe gate. But the only thing they have in common is they are on a toe gate. The causes were very, very distinct. So uh, we had to learn the hard way uh, about that. And it, it was because of gait analysis that we were able to tease out these relationships between different levels. And I told you that Dr. Sutherland was fearless. He wasn't foolhardy. He was not a swaggering, you know, cowboy. But once he had a biomechanically based rationale for an intervention, he'd go after it. And um, Jim Gage was another one uh, who uh, approached things that way. So Semmels didn't like come up overnight. You know, first it was a couple soft tissue surgeries at the same time. And then it was well, you know, we operate on, on a target muscle, but in reality, the uh, opposing muscle, the agonist to the antagonist, or the antagonist to the agonist. So if, if the reference muscle is the agonist, the opposing muscle is the antagonist. And focusing on how the antagonist functioned after the agonist had surgery was another um, dramatic uh, eye-opener in terms of understanding the impact of the surgeries that we did. And then finally, and this was heavily uh, driven by Jim Gage, at least in the clinical domain, was the recognition that um, a muscle's job during gait is to generate a moment. That moment is the product of the muscle's ability to generate force, which is intrinsic to the muscle, and the lever arm about which that muscle force is applied, i.e. the skeleton, i.e. let's do skeletal surgeries to restore lever arms. And I think probably like all new things that come along, you know, he was a bit of an evangelist and I think he probably pissed off a few people with his uh, enthusiasm. Uh, but I've always felt that I was in this sort of second phase of all of this as a critical enthusiast where I see, I see it, I get it. Um, I recognize this is a raw approach still. So we need to figure out as carefully and as cautiously and as fearlessly as we can, you know, how to, how to do it right, who gets what, the uh, advance in soft tissue surgeries, the next one was out of Melbourne, and it was the concept of dosing that, you know, we've got a, a variety of ways to deal with a muscle tendon unit. Well, you know, how do you figure out which one? And it's very logical to recognize these interventions by their um, power, hence the idea of dosing, and you don't want to obviously overdose on a surgery because the consequences will be a problem for the muscle's ability to generate tension or force. So, yeah, Semmels is in evolution. I have seen operations come and go, uh, which happens to all of us if you stick around long enough and you keep your eyes open. There are things that Sutherland was enthusiastic about that I've rejected, but it wasn't out of hubris. It was, it was rejected out of experience. And commitment like what? To, do you have, an, do you have an, uh, an example? I love that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he was a, a big proponent of uh, iliopsoas fractional lengthenings, lengthening at or over the brim. Yep. And uh, as I came to understand normal gait better, I appreciated that the hip flexors are motor number two in gait behind the ankle plantar flexors in terms of the magnitude of the moment that they generate. 
and I embraced that surgery early on. Um, I followed my patients afterwards. I listened to what they had to tell me, and I, I learned two things. Uh, one, I was doing it for cases where their pelvis was tilted anteriorly and their hips were flexed. And after surgery, their pelvis was tilted anteriorly and their hips were flexed. But now they were telling me that they had a harder time climbing stairs or getting up, climbing up a, a curb or something like that. So that led me to wonder, well, what's going on here? And the physical therapists were ahead of the orthopedic surgeons at this point, And they said, ask your patients to do a sit-up. See what happens. Couldn't do sit-ups. Hardly any of them could. Rectus abdominis, you know, weakness. There's a lot of muscles that go into controlling your pelvis and your hip in stance phase. Then the GMFCS came along and things got much clearer. If I was to consider like major advances over the course of my career, the GMFCS has to be up there, number one, because it took our muddled thinking and said, wait a minute, these patients can be segregated out before you do anything. And we understand their developmental trajectory now because of GMFCS. And therefore, okay, we know it's going to happen to them. And let's see if you can make it any different. And so the GMFCS3 group in particular, we were doing semel surgeries that were really beneficial for GMFCS ones and twos, and they were not working on the threes. And it became pretty clear as we understood the pathophysiology of the way they move, uh, why that's the case. So the threes are a group that should be thought of very separately from the, from the others. Yeah. Yeah. I, c- I couldn't agree more. It's interesting. I, I had down on my little list of questions and you started to get into it. I, I feel as though there is, it's, it's certainly multifactorial, but when you look at the patients, your own others, obviously we've all had patients where we sort of failed them in terms of uh, the ultimate treatment. Do you feel that a lot of times it was failure to recognize the right gate pattern or the right, right gate abnormality, or was it inadequate management of the underlying condition? Or is it, or is it just, it's a, it's a combination of both, or you mentioned at the beginning, sort of that, for, that fourth dimension, is it time? Is it the fact that you're doing it the <laughs> wrong time that they're a little bit too old? And I know this is a real generalization, but uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I want to back up a minute. Um, as I was thinking about your questions about semels, it wasn't just the orthopedists being fearless and having biomechanical rationales for doing these surgeries. It was improvement in perisurgical pain management that allowed these cases to be embraced by the hospital staff. In my early days and when I got to new hospitals and started gate analysis, the physical therapists basically thought they were protecting the patients from the surgeons. And the nurses were like, I hate CP. The kids are screaming for days. And all of that is gone. As you well know, it's, it's quite possible to keep these kids very, very comfortable after surgery. So that was another huge impediment to embracing semels. In terms of the bad outcomes, every factor that you mentioned reflect that you're experienced in caring for kids with CP. So all of those are true. And the um, ability to offer the optimal rehab afterwards, which is not three to five days, but is months, uh, is critical. And part of what attracted me to Shriners was a closer chance to do that, though I will be honest in Greenville, We took care of patients from six states, and the states were underserved, and it was really tough. In California, all of the kids are cared for by one government agency. It's not perfect, but there's much greater infrastructure, and it's easier to interface with them and become allies and uh, end up working, working together. 
Yeah, it's interesting you met you mentioned that because that's a big challenge here in Atlanta. Even I mean, most of my patients are obviously single state, being a lot of them are under government uh, insurance. But but even just within a state and the diversity of of patients of of cities, I mean, Atlanta is really so unique than the rest of this compared to the rest of the state. Yeah, I'm sure this is true in your practice as well. One of the challenges is really understanding the family, and like the recent term for it is grit. But I used to say, I want a family APGAR. I want like one number to tell me, can these guys do it? Uh, And, you know, you talk to people like John Birch, who spent a lot of his career trying to figure that out. And he had three or four questions that that he liked to ask. And I know they have a psychologist there, which is a much better way of trying to sift these things through. But I, I am sure there is somewhere in the world of psychology, a way to really better figure out how a family will deal with adversity because there's so many kinds of adversities that families uh, deal with. So that um, remains a challenge. And I I'm still surprised at how uh, certain families rise to the occasion and how others just totally decompensate. It's hard to get it right. Yeah, for sure. So I, one of the fun parts about this, uh, this little podcast is that I get to ask people like you sort of burning questions that I have um, about specific uh, aspects and it can be, you know, spine or, or hip. And in this case, there's a lot, I, I do a fair amount of uh, neuromuscular care and I've learned so much from Bob. And it's funny because you mentioned the idea that you bring in things from other institutions and some things get uh, integrated, some things get looked down on. But I'm curious because these are things that, that are simple and I thought would be practical for the listener. So the first is sagittal plane ankle pathology, in particular, gastrocnemius tightness. And the, the reason I mention this is that I remember as a, uh, as a fellow in Kurgram basically uh, talking about, uh, he, he was not a proponent of a, um, of a tendo Achilles lengthening. And we in Dallas did a lot of tendo Achilles lengthenings. And, and so this came up and I'm sort of curious, I've moved a little bit more towards a fractional lengthening over my career. And that's pre- the predominance of what I do. But Bob, who I think is a just tremendous surgeon, very thoughtful, swears up and down that the outcomes can be similar. And I'm curious if you have, uh, have thoughts on this and how, how you address it. I do. Um, Kerr um, is very forceful in promoting that concept. And um, if you know Kerr's backstory, you can understand a little bit better why he might have ended up there. He um, got, well, his, his first work in Belfast, uh, a hugely undertreated patient population with iatrogenic crouch being very common after overly aggressive ankle plantar flexor lengthening. The same thing happened when he got to Melbourne, and he attempted to publish to try to make that point. As I've thought about it over the years, there were multiple problems from that era that are probably make it unfair to pin it all on the tendo Achilles lengthening. The problems were that the way the operation was done, um, it was dosed too strongly. When I was trained we did tendo Achilles lengthenings to set the ankle in 20 degrees of dorsiflexion with the knee extended. Terrible mistake. It ought to be plantar grade with the knee extended. And we were not doing multi-level surgery, so we were putting this muscle at a real disadvantage after we lengthened it. So whenever possible, based on the dosing concept, which means getting the ankle to plantar grade with the knee extended, if you can do it with a recession, there are animal studies that suggest that that preserves strength of the muscle tendon unit. On the other hand, a properly dosed TAL in the setting of a comprehensive intervention, I do that because I've always worked in centers where the patients are neglected, and there's no way a gastroxoleus recession is going to get 
you what you need. And the consequence yeah. of that is they'll be on their toes. So I try to have a little more nuanced approach to that. I think Kerr was on a crusade to stop iatrogenic crouch. And the only way you're going to do that is to make it very black and white. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm moving up the leg. Hamstrings also a li- interesting because I feel in my you know still relatively short career, 13 years, I have seen a couple of things. So one, I went again from Dallas. Everything was open to uh, Atlanta, where Bob is actually a big proponent of percutaneous uh, lengthings, which I, I know uh, a number of people are. But I also would say that over my career, I think that I've become much less aggressive about hamstring lengthenings as part of that um, and try to do guided growth or whatnot. Where, what are your thoughts on, on – so what are your thoughts on percutaneous lengthenings and what are, what are your thoughts on sort of avoiding the soft tissues in, the, in that setting altogether and working more through guiding the growth? Yeah, so the uh, challenges with that muscle group are that it crosses two joints. And we, we think about it at the knee. We don't think about it at the hip. But what's happening at the hip is definitely going to affect what's happening at the knee. So that was a a first big step was to start to be thinking about that muscle truly from its origin to its insertion. Next is a terminology uh, issue. You know, what Bob Bruce does as a percutaneous surgery, what Bob Kay at Children's of LA does as a percutaneous surgery is not what many other people who are online, on the internet, promoting this as a you know, radical departure from everything we've learned from Drs. Sutherland and Perry and all of that. So um, to lump all of those people together is a mistake. In the end, I believe it's much ado about nothing. The um, incisions uh, to do these open are, are not very big. And if you are a surgeon who embraces precision, it's pretty clear that one of the types of the percutaneous myofascial lengthening approaches can do some serious damage to the muscle tendon unit. An open recession, aponeurectomy, allows you to work at the myotendinous junction, release the tendon part, and not do any damage to the motor underneath it. And as you well know, when you cut that aponeurosis, it pops open. And that's when you should stop. Anything more than that is going to be damaging to the muscle. And something that I learned from my patients was that things changed a lot for them in terms of their muscle tendon unit length in the weeks following surgery, when they were in a knee immobilizer or a long leg cast sitting in a wheelchair. And that led me to approach this concept of slow surgical lengthening. And that came from a really wonderful book called God's Hotel, which is a book by uh, a woman named Victoria Sweet, who was a uh, internal medicine doc at a county charity hospital in San Francisco called um, Laguna Honda. And while she was working there, she was getting a degree on medieval medicine, focusing on the work of a female healer. And as she read this woman's work and was caring for these, you know, just end of the road, desperate people at her at Laguna Honda, she recognized that what they needed was slow medicine. There were things that could only be fixed slowly and that most of what we are focusing on is very fast or quick medicine. And that resonated to me with the most gentle way to lengthen a muscle tendon unit. So I borrowed from her. She said, slow medicine. I said, you know, slow surgical lengthening. Yeah. It's a great book. 
That's we train residents. Yeah. yeah, we train residents from UCSF, and they still rotate at Laguna Honda. So I always enjoy uh, seeing how many of them have actually read that book because it's something that I think they would really, really like to read. So I guess going back to the question, then it sounds as though your treatment philosophy has changed, and that guiding the growth is much more common for you than yeah. Okay. Yeah, the tools. If if you're at the right time in the course of all of this. The tools are the growth modulation, the casting, and a very, very gentle hamstring lengthening. Yeah. And we, we looked at that approach and found we did um, biodex testing of the knee flexors before and after. And isometric muscle strength uh, of the hamstrings was unchanged by the surgery, and isokinetic was actually improved. So the Dictum that we are all taught, you know, anytime you lengthen a muscle, you weaken it. Well, it's not, it's not quite that simple. There are ways to lengthen a muscle tendon unit and not necessarily weaken it. Well, I, I love that. I, I'm, I'm glad I've sort of been on par with that. Out of curiosity, what is the role for a patellar tendon advancement for you in guided growth? Because I think that comes up a lot. A lot of the, you know, the kid, I, I feel like that's an assault a little bit on semels in a way if you take the approach that, well, we'll see what it looks like down the road because then you're buying the kid another surgery. I mean, we do combine it oftentimes with hardware removal, but at the same time, if you don't correct it at that, at that early uh, intervention, you're buying them another surgery. Yeah, so um, it is possible to measure the length of the muscle during gait and the rate at which that muscle length changes while they're walking. And that is particularly helpful for biarticular muscles like the hamstrings and the, potentially the rectus femoris, though that's still being baked using it that way. I was intrigued when the distal femoral extension osteotomy came along because it was the Gillette approach, which was rhizotomy to take care of soft tissue troubles, and then whatever's left, you deal with skeletal surgery. Very nice. Uh, in their hands, it seems to work for some number of patients. Most of us don't have the rhizotomist, and the patients are coming to us uh, too late. Uh, for something like that. I think practicing in the People's Republic of Minnesota uh, has been a really good thing for them, uh, getting the kids, you know, at the right time in the process. So if you do a distal femoral extension osteotomy, there is no doubt that you are acutely lengthening the rectus and doing any kind of a rectus, well, a patellar tendon shortening, which is my preference over an osteotomy, um, is very easy because the muscle is our, that muscle tendon unit is floppy. So you, you can fix that. In cases where I have thought, ah, I've got pure weakness here. And what I need to do is tighten the rectus as a hip extensor. I have found that the ability to really pull it down um, has not been nearly as gratifying. And the limited literature that we have on that, which is from Gillette, which is using it in a different way, was not very encouraging. They said it's really best when you do it with the extension osteotomy. So I think there's more work to be um, done on that. If you have the tools that we talked about earlier and the knee doesn't get like out of control into a full-blown crouch gait, I'm not sure what the benefit is going to be to pulling the rectus down relative to gait. Now, treating patella alta, which we think has a high likelihood of causing pain decades later in adult life, maybe there, maybe. What, what's your experience with that? I mean, are you, are you doing it in isolation? 
So, well, it's interesting. Again, very similar to what you allude to. I think that we combine it uh, with all of our acute osteotomies for the exact reason that you uh, allude to. I feel like you're shortening it. Um, I tend to find that there are a number of children who seem that they have Alta starting out, even if they don't have a true knee flexion contracture. And so we will still use the, with, a, with an uh, apparent hamstring tightness, we will oftentimes do a very judicious hamstring lengthening with guided growth. And in those kids, if they have some pre-existing Alta, I'll pull it down. And I, I've, I've moved towards what you're ta- talking about. I do what we do ours with a little twist in the tendon, but Bob still, I think, likes the osteotomy. But the kids I just don't know on are the, those who don't have any Alta and have a reasonably looking lateral knee, but I'm still using the guided growth as an approach to try to avoid a hamstring lengthening, especially if I think the weakness is going to be a problem. And I don't know what to do with them. Um, yeah. And the thing we'll see, sort of see. But, but you make a good point that maybe we're just treating ourselves and maybe we're not treating the gait uh, at the end of the day. And we're, we're treating something hypothetical, this idea that the Alta will cause problems down the road. Yeah, I see the x-ray as a uh, intermediate variable and not a ultimate outcome variable. Yeah. Um, it's not always directly linked to function. So let me talk about hip. And I do a lot of hip. Uh, we've actually talked uh, before about this, and, and I, I loved your um, your talk this year on guided growth, which as a sort of an aside, I think is so cool because uh, you know you're far enough along in your career that I think that it's, it's really great that you're still really innovating. I mean, it's a, it, we, we've used it a lot more really from watching talks of, that you've given and, and reading articles. So I, I think it's great. But I, I see in the hip world, in my hip patients, sort of three separate problems. And I wanted to go through each one. Mm, so good. the first is the three-year-old uh, child, typically with pretty severe quadriplegic uh, cerebral palsy and really significant tone issues. And oftentimes you talked about sort of the family hardiness, the grip factor. These are the either not so gritty or they just haven't been able to, to get access to care. And I feel that the likelihood of recurrence in these patients is absolutely sky high, but the challenges of waiting are increased deformity. And in, a, in some kids, I've had, you know, seven, eight-year-olds who are really uh, symptomatic from their dislocations because of, you know, early arthritic changes. And I just don't know what to do with them. And, and, and we know, again, the recurrence rate is going to happen. But what, what's your current approach to those? Well, I think that we should recognize that the case that you're describing is a bit of an outlier. It, that's not generally the way it works, at least if they are in a system where they're getting some attention from somebody, be it a therapist or a physiatrist, doing a little Botox or, or some tone management. I think that it is a mistake in that three or four-year-old to wait based on age and and ignore the x-ray, essentially, because you know based on migration percentage what is coming. And I think that one just has to go into that telling the family that this is a two-stage experience for you, and we're going to stay on top of it so that the second operation is not heroic. It's going to be a much more straightforward intervention. So in that circumstance, that's kind of where my head's at on that particular problem. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I, we'll, we'll excuse me, but will you know, will guided growth make a difference in those cases? Um, yep. Well, uh, until a center applies them aggressively to everybody, it's a little bit hard to figure out. There's only one paper where they really did that, which I think is the best paper on all of this, which is the one out of Milan with Nick Portinaro. And, you know, they'll be who maybe by the end of your career, you know, this will all be uh, <laughs> sorted out. But that's, in my mind, the most likely application will be doing it much more commonly, much sooner for it to be efficacious. 
Yeah, interesting. Well, so and and just because I, I'm always amazed at how many uh, sort of younger folks listen to this, but the importance in those young kids about soft tissue dosing at that initial onset surgery, at least for me, you know, I, I still see a fair number of kids who are treated by, I think, well-meaning uh, orthopedists who are in the community or whatnot, and they get a varus osteotomy and that's it. And, and they come back really contracted and now they've got a deformity without the soft tissues being managed. And so what role of, of uh, soft tissue lengthening and, and, and uh, how do you manage the soft tissues in, in these really severely uh, contracted children? Right. So one philosophy that we don't spend a lot of time with is, you know, skeletal shortening is another way to do soft tissue lengthening. That's a concept. Yep. And you know when you do a hip reconstruction, if you end up shortening the femur, you'll generally relax the knee from its extrinsic tightness. So that's one mode to go at it. That usually is not enough. I have, uh, was an aggressive uh, early soft tissue surgeon and a lot of soft tissue releases at the time of EDRO. And in the absence of tone management, you'll be back uh, attempting to redo those soft tissues and it's never as good um, as the first time from uh, scarring, in my experience. So you alluded to this earlier. We really need the help of people who are managing their tone or our interventions, particularly in these severe cases, are going to be disappointing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and you know, we, do, we administer our own Botox, but we do have a psychiatry group and it just sort of depends. I think that that's not... Not the case in every center, but, um, but yeah. So you talked about sort of the recurrence um, a little bit, and I find this one of the most challenging uh, patient populations. And I, uh, it's interesting because I actually remember t- asking you about this on the podium sort of as a, just I was, I was curious about your thought on it at the time, and I still am, which is uh, the windswept deformity that some, of the, some kids get afterwards, which still I don't totally understand. And it's, but it's incredibly problematic. They become stiff. They become painful. It's hard to sit them in a wheelchair. The kids sometimes look like they're about to fall out of the wheelchair, but it's the only position they can sit in with this hyperabducted hip. How do we prevent this? And what are some of the ways that you've found that are more successful in terms of managing? Yeah, tough question, of course. There's probably multiple pathways to being windswept. Some is um, intrinsic to the CP with uh, asymmetry side to side, throw in a scoliosis and a pelvic obliquity that has to have an impact. And then sadly, there are cases where um, we caused it. You know, we were overly aggressive with the soft tissue surgeries, not recognizing that the kid wasn't perfectly symmetric. We were dosing the surgeries based on um, their exam awake when they were spastic and hungry and scared versus, you know, what's really going on. So I don't really have an answer to your question. I, I think, though, that recognizing the possibility of that and balancing your inter- or dosing your interventions, not for symmetry of intervention, but rather relative to the deformity you're dealing with, will lessen the chance of you causing the, the windswept problem. And do you have a, a sort of a little bit of an algorithm for when it happens, how you address that? Um, nothing that's been very satisfying. You know, I've lengthened abductor uh, external rotators. Um, you get a pretty good feeling in at the end of surgery that things are a little more symmetric. But again, in the absence of anything operating upstream in this disease process in the central nervous system, anything anything can happen. I've yeah. created windswept. I, I, I can't say that I've taken somebody windswept in one direction and made them windswept in the other, <laughs> but... Um, I've taken kids who I thought were, were, were balanced and have them ended up windswept. 
Yeah. Okay, so the the third group that I struggle with, I just love this, by the way. This is this is very fun for me to be able to talk about this. Um, are the children typically uh, at at this age they would be classified as a GMFCS three because they are doing a little bit of ambulating and they are subluxed but not dislocated and they don't have a lot of deformity. Typically, in my experience, a lot of pelvic retroversion, um, a lot of lumbar lordosis, a lot of pe- pelvic retroversion, and clearly the deficiency is posterior. And they're having pain, but they, again, they don't have enough abnormality on the radiograph that you're going to, that you would offer them or section again, also because they're, they're ambulatory. I struggle with these a lot. I, as somebody who does PAO, the PAO is not a great operation for this posterior on coverage. Um, I've thought I've done some femoral antiversion just to try to redirect the femur. And I, I don't really know what the best option is. And also I'm a spine guy. I mean, sometimes I've, I've tried to correct it if I can, if I can, uh, you know, use a, a a needed spinal surgery at the same time to actually reduce some of the lumbar lordosis, but that's not always e- easy either. I just, I don't really know how the best way to manage this. Yeah, this is where I think the GMFCS classification can shed a little bit of light on things. I mean, at the level of GMFCS 1 and 2, the most common piece of pathoanatomy is increased antiversion. And antiversion can give you a subtle appearance of dysplasia or subluxation, and correcting the antiversion can be a satisfying experience. As you get up into the threes, um, things are getting more complicated without a doubt. And I trained in San Diego where, um, on the one hand, they were early adopters of volumetric imaging and, and did it routinely way before anybody thought, well, they had early software to do it. They've continued to do it. And Salil has published a couple papers, you know, yep. looking at pathoanatomy and we got the 3D images, but we did pretty much the same operation for all of them, which was, yep. was the DEGA. And we said we could do a little more posterior, a little more anterior. I'm not sure that's really accurate. So there's that tool in our toolbox. At the other end of the pediatric orthopedic spectrum is the PAO when they're skeletally adultoid. And in between there is an operation that gives you the power to put the acetabulum wherever you like it, a la PAO, that fell out of favor with the advent of Pemberton and Dega, which is the triple. And you and I have both heard Ira Zaltz talk, and I think Ira is on to something in terms of improving the technique of doing that operation, but more importantly, because of the knowledge of acetabular version recognizing which way to move the uh, acetabulum. And a, and a PAO and a triple probably have, I'm not an expert, a comparable ability to address those things. And if that's true, if that's true, and if you commit to understanding the pathoanatomy of the acetabulum before you do anything, you know, you might find yourself doing many fewer Dega-Pemberton operations and more triples and, and creating what is fun to call precision medicine, right? Precision medicine is, is genomically based for most of, most of medicine. But what about biomechanically based, pathoanatomically based precision medicine? That's what we should be practicing. So we do that in the gate lab. Everybody gets a treatment plan that's based on their own set of data. Same could be done um, at the hip with better imaging at the front end. I love How about you? Where, where, where are you with all that? 
Yeah, I, well, you know, it's it's really interesting you say that. So, I uh, as somebody who does PAO, I've done PAO, um, and I've had some successes in ambulatory neuromuscular patients. And, and sort of the group that I was thinking about was that older uh, population. It's interesting because my experience with triple, I think, as was with most people, is less than my PAOs. It's a very powerful oh, yeah. operation, but it's sort of fun. I mean, it's smaller, right? Even in the in the CP kids, the bones are bigger, the osteotomies are are a little bit more involved, but in uh, I think that part of the problem is we haven't made the triple as accessible, right? There's there's Dega and Pemberton, which are relatively straightforward for most surgeons. And then there's PAO, which is like you have to be a hip specialist to do it. And so people, since triple is closer to that, we don't, people aren't as well versed in it. But I love that Ira and I love the Woody and others who have really mm-hmm. sort of uh, embraced it. And so we've done a little bit more of it. Uh, in fact, I was talking with Tim Schrader and he has a, you know, a, a nine or 10 year old who he's doing one on this week coming up, uh, at our center. And so I think we're getting more and more involved with it, but it's just, it's a, it is a struggle to determine what, uh, you know, as we've been talking about all day, what the dose is for that. Um, it is a bigger operation. Whereas, you know, I think in a, in a single setting, doing bilateral femurs, bilateral pelvis is not that big of a surgical endeavor. Doing bilateral triples is a, is a different animal, at least for me. You know, right? Um, oh I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. But so, you know what? That at the end of the day, that shouldn't be the deciding point, right? I, yes. You know, there's there's costs associated with it, but and that should be respected. But in the end, if you have to stage it because the pathoanatomy calls for it, I yep. think it's an easy easy choice. Yeah, yeah well, from what I've seen of Ira's work and um, less directly of Woody, I think they're doing exactly what you're talking about, which is making it more accessible, technically more accessible, but you have to understand what to do after you make the cuts, right? Yep. I grew up and my first part of my career was in the heavy surgery side of club feet. Here's my trajectory. In the first years, I mastered how to take the foot apart, but I didn't master how to put it back together. And that, that took a little more time. So, and that was not understanding pathoanatomy. So it might be true at the hip as well. Like, yeah, you can make the cuts, but then what do you do? And yeah. PAO people, I think, probably understand that. Yeah, for sure. Let me ask you about another sort of uh, the, the next link. As you know, I do a fair amount of spine. And so I think as somebody who, who takes care of a lot of neuromuscular conditions that sort of bridge spine and hip, I found I, I always learn things, um, and I've had kids who have relatively, in my mind, normal appearing hips, and you do a spine fusion, and all of a sudden the hips go to hell, and and it's and it's it's super humbling, and oftentimes I don't really know uh, uh, exactly what the problem is because sometimes the hips still don't look bad, um, they're not arthritic, they're not truly uh, subluxing, but at the same time they all of a sudden they have pain that wasn't there before, and there's clearly a ramification uh, for those children of doing the spine fusion on the, uh, the hip mechanics. How do you counsel families who are, who are facing both hip and spine pathology that yeah. needs to be specifically treated? Yeah, it's a, it's a debate that, you know, we like to do at the IPOS every year. Yeah. And, and to me, the answer is actually pretty simple. There's enough uncertainty here that wherever the pain generator is, I go after that first with the rare exception of if the hip is really hurting and the pelvis is really oblique, I think we're not going to get as good of an outcome. But anything in between that, where it hurts, is where you go. And I think in learning from my sports colleagues, we have a um, aggressive hip arthroscopist on our team. And the 
CP cases that we have sent to him, which have typically been cognitively very intact, um, but um, all ra ranges of GMFCS, if the ball's in the socket and it's hurting, they have a labral tear. And, hmm, okay, fixing the labral tear, does that you know, make their pain better? I, I can't really answer that. He'll tell you, oh, absolutely, but wow. he's, that, he's that kind of guy. So yeah. I think in that group where, you know, think about it. If you change the joint contact dynamics by leveling their pelvis, and if they had a acetabular labral tear, maybe, maybe it's getting crushed now and hurting. Yeah. Maybe. That's really fascinating. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before, but it, it makes sense. Okay. So I wanted to ask you about something that is, uh, we actually started looking at um, initially through the harm study group uh, in Spine, but and uh, the group in uh, at DuPont, Freeman Miller sort of beat us to that. And it's, it's one of those things that, that is sort of sobering you don't want to think about, which was that if you look at spine fusion patients 10 years out from their operation, about 10 to 15% of them aren't alive anymore, um, which is really terrible. And I think it has given me pause a number of times now looking at some pretty complex kids. And I think the, probably the same is true in, in some of the, the hip pathology that we see, that we have, we have kids who have just unbelievably bad hip pathology. And you start going, is this a little bit of the, the, the beginning of the downward spiral that can't be stopped? And I'm curious how we determine who will really benefit uh, from these from these surgeries that I think do have a, a substantial data showing that they benefit the right patient, but how do we figure out who that right patient is? Yeah, I've had three uh, patients in my career who um, were severe CP. Their hips seemed to really be hurting, and we either did uh, palliative surgery or reconstructive surgery. Two of the three were reconstructive surgeries who died six months within six months of surgery wow. from their CP. Yeah. And I felt terrible about that. Uh, that is exactly the problem that you're, you're talking about. You know, if it gets to be five years, that probably we're not going to be able to figure out. But just because you can get them through the surgery uh, in that group, we need to be more thoughtful about, about really what, what's going on. So that's why I've stopped calling some of these hip surgeries salvage surgeries and started calling them palliative surgeries. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, well, you know, the life expectancy isn't great here. If we want these remaining years to be without pain, this is the best we've got. And it always, always involves tone management. Always. Yeah. Yep. First. Which is great. So my next question that I had up here was about tone management. So what percentage of patients at the shrine do you think have, and, and I, this is a, a ridiculous term to put, but good tone management. In other words, thoughtful tone management that is working at least close to optimally for that patient. Again, realizing that there's a variety there. And I think bigger question, a lot sort of correlated to that is how can centers optimize this better? And whose, whose job is it nationally to be yeah. in charge of tone management? Like you, when I was in Greenville, I did all the uh, Botox injections, and I um, think that I had a very thoughtful um, approach to Botox. It wasn't like a hammer, and I was going to use it every time infinitely. In Sacramento, um, there are three physiatrists on our team, and they do the tone management, and they, um, they do much more than Botox, much more. And 
where they always start is oral baclofen, which I think hardly ever works. Um, the doses yep. to get the effect are usually you pay a price. Uh, but there are other kinds of movement disorders that I, and maybe you and I from our training, um, don't quite appreciate. There's you know subtle dystonias and things that there are other medications for that they believe they can tease out in looking and examining the child and will try you know alternative meds. I think that the uh, intrathecal baclofen pump is a fabulous tool for the right kid and without a doubt the right patient. Is, is, do you guys have a program for that? Yes, and, and I would wholeheartedly agree with you. Again, yeah. right patient, right patient. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but if you right find patient, the right one, it works great. Yeah. yeah, right patient and then right family. So when things go wrong, you know, they don't go really wrong. Yeah. Rhizotomy is um, a tool that probably should not be like, totally thrown away, but you need to be very sophisticated in figuring out how to do it. And you can't even read the literature and understand what is rhizotomy since there's no standard technique for even doing it. So yeah. that makes for a, that makes for a difficult problem. So I would say that um, across the shrine, there are a lot of different circumstances relative to tone management. I think that I'm working at a Shriners that um, is in a relative sense resourced well. And um, I think that, our patients get looked at for tone management and it gets discussed, but how efficacious it is, is another story. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I, I completely agree with that. We have a phenomenal physiatry department and the family unit is so critical in it. And then just, you know, sometimes I think well-intentioned uh, approaches from a, from a physician standpoint fall flat. If you don't have the right family involved, it takes, a, there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. So um, I, I know that we're a little, getting a little bit short on time. This has been amazing, but I had a couple of other questions. So one of the great parts about this for me is that I get to talk with somebody like you who is has such a broad experience in this. And But I feel as though, you know, I've been practiced 13 years. I trained at some great places. And I look back at my understanding of all of this, neuromuscular conditions of gait and what have you, and I'm curious what the Nick Fletcher in 2023 would need to know as a resident about neuromuscular care. Say I wasn't going in peds. Trust me, the residents laugh when they go to Bob's clinic because Bob is a master gate analyst and, and has been doing it forever without, without uh, true 3D gate, gate analysis. And he's very good at it. And the residents come out just sort of wide-eyed going, I have no idea what that was. But the question is, do they need to? What do we need to teach sort of, you know, your general orthopedic resident about gait so that they can help people in whatever specialty they go into? Obviously, maybe not hand, but I think every it, it does have applications in most other areas. That's a, a great question. And uh, my goal is for them not to come out of the clinic with me. Oh, my God, what just happened? I don't get it. I'm I just, you know, it's never going to happen for me. I don't know how much you know about my history with Bob, which might, you know, be another um, topic um, in terms of the way our careers sort of paralleled and intersected. Uh, but we can get to that if you, if you're yeah. interested or if, if he no, has I love that. If yeah, he has no, he, he did not. He did not. Yeah. So I do a lot of visiting professors over the years, right? And when I talk about gait analysis, I say, look, the whole foundation of this house is an understanding of normal gait. And that is a piece of our resident education curriculum that is either completely absent or woefully underrepresented. And my, my goal in training residents is to, is to have them finish with at least a systematic way to watch how somebody walks. And you are exactly right. The applications are way, way beyond Pete's ortho. 
And then secondly, to recognize when you're dealing with a complex gait problem, that if you're going to advocate for your patient, you'll get them to a place that has the tools to do it right, which, and there are a lot of tools that we both know. I mean, you're at a center that has just about everything. You don't have the gait analysis. You should, okay? That place, yeah. you know, they're big, they're strong. They, they want to be, you know, leaders. It's like, come on, guys, you know, what, what's holding you back? So anyway, those are my, my goals for them. So, so let me ask. Normal gait. Normal yeah, gait in the, in the curriculum. So, uh, which is amazing because I, I think we all know why that has faded away, which to me is because it is not easily digestible in small bits. You can't just watch a two minute yep. YouTube video and figure it out. You really need to think about it. You need to observe people. And, and I, I do worry it's going to go away more and more and more. And I, and I also feel that a lot of adult spine pathology could have been figured out earlier had people had the spine people actually paid attention during the gate lectures. Um, yep, and, yep, uh, it's, yep. It's you are right on, right on with that. All of this, and it, they don't do much with gait, but the spinopelvic stuff now is like, you guys are just looking at them sitting up, you know, standing or sit, it's like, there's more, there's much more here that we can measure. So yeah. let's go at it. Yeah. So the, the final question along that line of, of uh, though is, how do we teach fellows? Because again, you have a, you have a phenomenal center that is, is well-equipped and I have a phenomenal center that's poorly equipped. And sometime your people are going to come to my center as, as partners of mine. So how do we, and this includes you, teach people to go someplace that may or may not have a gate lab, maybe does have a gate lab and they have to set it up. And how do we teach providers to be proficient in gate analysis, uh, given whatever they're going to be facing? Yeah. So when our fellows finish, um, if they've determined that they have a love for this and they want to go somewhere and start it, my relationship with them continues in a very robust way because it's hard. It's very hard to set it up and get going, even if you're in a subsidized setting. And um, the challenges, I think, are getting the partners to uh, buy in. So I usually offer to go be a cheerleader for the uh, approach, you know, with, with talks that you've heard and then helping them understand you know, what it takes to get it started and how to most efficiently use it early on. You typically get all the train wreck cases at the front end. Yep. They're train wrecks. Let's face it. We're, you know, you need, you need a culture shift, whereas like these mild ones, God, maybe they're more important for gait analysis. They can, yep. they can, they're, they're so close to normal, they can taste it. So it's like, let's get it right to, uh, to get them there. So that was a challenge tossed to me at IPOS. And my initial response to that was, well, look, if, if when MRI came along, we said, oh, it's too expensive and ah, it's too complicated to read, you know, where would we be? So, like, I don't want to offer an a, a alternative to gate analysis because I believe we should all be advocating for it. Well, I broke down and that led to the, you know, cell phone based video assessment. Yep. And for those who are going to places where um, they're not going to have a gate lab, a video high quality that you can slow down and advance frame by frame will greatly help you develop better observational gait analysis skills and will, you know, I, I think improve your ability to make decisions. And then if you're in a teaching environment, like how did the residents even know what this was like before you intervened? Well, if we have the videos, that's the case. And you've probably appreciated this. The parents don't even remember what their kids Yes, like. exactly right. Right. So the videos are very helpful that way. So that, I believe, is low-hanging fruit for upping your game if you are going to be doing this kind of work. The, uh, the future is that we're moving into marker-less motion capture, so you don't even have to put markers on. 
And we're moving into an era where you can just take one or two cell phone videos shot at some 45 degree offset. And because of machine learning and neural networks, we'll be able to spit out what the GateLab spits out. Then no one's going to have an excuse relative to, I can't get the data. The excuse then will be, I don't know what to do with the data. And that's where it's incumbent upon us to educate them. Yeah, I love that. I was going to ask you about, about uh, you know, neural networks and, and AI as it uh, pertains to that. Just because, so I was at the lecture, which is part of the reason I asked that question. For those who are interested, who may not have been at IPOS, first go to IPOS because you can hear John talk. But but secondly, what are a couple of the apps? Because I remember you you posted them or on your on your um, slides as, that, that you've found really helpful. Yeah, Dartfish, you pay $8 a year, and um, it's a stable um, platform. We started with Huddle because it was free, but because it's free, they change things around. And yeah. it's better to, to drop, you know, 8 bucks in and get something yeah. that's not going to be changing too, um, too, too dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, this has been awesome. I honestly, I could do this a lot longer, but it's 9.30 and I usually am in bed by now. So um, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for doing this. This is incredibly insightful. I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk to you. Nick, I'd say the same. Um, it's been a really fun conversation and um, uh, a chance to get to know you a little bit better, which I, uh, I value that as well. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to our next time together. Likewise.